I invite you as you uh, make your way back to your seat with all of your hot breakfasts and coffees and OJs to turn your Bibles open to John chapter 12. We'll be looking at verses uh, 20 through 50. we got a long way to go this morning. Hopefully we'll be able to, to hit all the, the high marks. But let's go ahead and dive in. Um, a little bit of context as you're turning there. If you missed us last week, at this point in John's Gospel, Jesus has entered Jerusalem. Um, this is the triumphant entry. And uh, Jesus is fully aware of all the things that lays ahead of him. We saw last week, in fact, that Jesus was orchestrating all of it. But what we saw last week, in addition to Jesus' orchestration of his passion, were the different responses from the different people groups that were there. You know, for example, there's just the normal Jewish crowd, the, the layperson, the commoner. They were just excited that Jesus was there because they had it in their hearts and their minds that, that Jesus was this triumphant, military-like king, like a king of the world, that he had come to, to vindicate Israel and all the rest. So they are just really excited to see Jesus. But then, of course, there was the religious elite, the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the scribes, at this point, they were completely fed up with Jesus. They wanted to kill Jesus, and actually, they've already signed his death warrant. They were plotting at this point. But as we get into our passage uh, this morning, starting in verse 20, there, there's a new group. We see that the Greeks are after Jesus. Thanks, Lon. The Greeks are after Jesus. These are the Gentiles. They're representing basically the rest of the world. And we're told that they are eager to see Jesus. Now, we're not exactly sure why. I mean, they could have been God-fearers. That is, non-Hebrew people who worshipped Yahweh. That seems to be the case here. Perhaps they were there the day that Jesus cleared the temple. If you remember back in John chapter 2, Jesus cleared the temple. But he cleared a specific part of the temple. He cleared the court of the Gentiles. That's where God-fearers could come to worship Yahweh. But the religious elite, they had set up their... Um, they're, uh, you know, all the things that they were selling right then, preventing the Gentiles from worshiping God. So, so Jesus clears that. Maybe they were there that day. Maybe they saw Jesus stick up for them, and maybe they were impressed by Jesus. We're not sure. But what we do know is that they were eager to see Jesus. They, they go to Philip, probably because Philip had a Greek name. We're not sure why Philip went to Andrew, but both of them together went to Jesus. And they said, Jesus, there's a whole bunch of Greeks, Gentiles, and they really want to see it. Now, there's something in this request that lights a fuse in Jesus' heart and mind. Because the, the Greeks were finally after him, Jesus concluded that his hour was no longer on the horizon, but his hour had, in fact, arrived. So right what we have in these 30 verses are the very last public words is his valedictory address to the crowds, his final speech, his last words, and last words are always important. In fact, his, his last words, what we have here, is the very center of John's gospel. We have two things. We have the matters of the cross, and we have people's response to it. All right, so let's go ahead and read it together, starting in verse 20. <clears throat> Hear the word of God. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was born of Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. And if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Now the crowd that stood there and heard it said they, it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to them. 
But Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you might become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes, he has hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart in turn, and I would heal them. Now, Isaiah said these things because he saw uh, his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even the authorities, believed in him, but for the fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. So they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Brothers, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, through your servant, Paul, you tell us that your life-giving word is profitable for, for teaching, for reproof, for training, for correction and encouragement. And I'm willing to bet that every single one of us in here needs all of those things this morning. Maybe some of us need to see Jesus and all of his glory and power and authority and grace for the very first time. Lord God, we need you, and we ask that you would send your spirit down upon us, that you would anoint us, that you would unplug our ears, that you would open our eyes and soften our hearts uh, to receive your word, the word that we need. Do a mighty work in our midst, O oh God, for our eternal good and for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Up into this point, Jesus has been presenting himself as a new kind of king. Certainly not a king that anybody was expecting, certainly not the Jews. In fact, Jesus is a king unlike any king that had come before and any king and any ruler that has lived since. Um, there's a man named Charles Weed who captured uh, this beautifully in his poem called Christ and Alexander, Alexander the Great, who's representing all the rulers of this world. And this is what he writes. He says, Jesus and Alexander died at 33. One died in Babylon and one on Calvary. One gained all for self and one himself he gave. One conquered every throne, the other every grave. When died the Greek, forever fell his throne of swords but Jesus died to live forever, the Lord of lords. Jesus and Alexander died at 33. The Greek made all men slaves. The Jew made all men free. One built a throne on blood. The other built a throne on love. The one was born of earth. The other from above. One won all this earth to lose all earth in heaven. The other gave up all 
that all to him be given. The Greek forever died. The Jew forever lives. Jesus is unlike any king that ever came before him and has ever lived since. There's this pastor, um, the late uh, Reverend John Lockridge, that uh, in my seminary preaching class, they made us listen to him. And he has this famous sermon, That's My King. And as I read that poem, I was thinking of, of his words to his sermon, That's My King. And this is what he says. He says, Jesus is the greatest phenomenon to ever cross the horizon of this world. He is God's Son, the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient Savior. He is the centerpiece of civilization. He is unparalleled. He is unprecedented. He is the highest personality in philosophy. He is the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He is the king of righteousness. He is the king of the ages. He's the king of the heaven. He's king of glory. He's king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And brother, that is our king. And it's for that reason, though much of that had yet to be revealed, that the rest of the world was going after Jesus. Because you see, the Greeks back then, they were seekers of truth. And somehow, someway, they perceived that Jesus was truth. And so they went after him. And what we have here is incarnate truth, revealing truth of the utmost importance to all those who have ears to hear. And so there's a couple of subjects that he brings up in his last words to the crowds. He brings up the doctrine of theology. Secondly, briefly, the doctrine of unbelief. And then lastly, he makes an evangelical plea. All right, so we're going to look at those in order. First off, the doctrine of theology. You see this, uh, or rather, the theology of the cross. You see this in verses 20 through 33. Now, there's three quick subtopics to the cross that Jesus, again, in his last words, uh, is, is, is sure to communicate to the crowds. Okay, there's the centrality of the cross, the glory of the cross, and the power of the cross. We're going to look at those in turn. First off, the centrality of the cross, verses 20 through 26. Brothers, I know I don't need to say this, but the cross of Jesus Christ is absolutely everything. And not just for us. It is, it is the event upon which all of human history has turned. Okay, it is the event, the cross of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. Now again, remember the context. All of the Greeks were after Jesus. You know, they, they've had their kings. But they've, they've seen a little bit of Jesus. They've seen Jesus do amazing things. And they're wondering to themselves, what kind of king is this Jesus? And what is his kingship going to be like? And so that's why they were after Jesus. Now you better believe, though, that the rest of the Jewish crowd, they were really eager to see what Jesus was going to say. Because the common Jew, I mean, they just knew it in their hearts that, that Jesus was going to be in the line of Alexander the Great a worldly type of king, this conqueror, this military giant that was finally going to give Israel their time in the sun, just like all the other nations had enjoyed for so very long. Only to have their misplaced hopes fade when Jesus says this, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, what is Jesus saying there? Jesus is revealing, he's starting to reveal what kind of king he is, and what his kingship is going to be like. Because remember, our was a synonym for the cross. Jesus is saying right here that the cross is central to his life and to his mission as a king. Uh, John Stott has a book, The Cross of Christ. Have you all read that before, The Cross of Christ? If you haven't, I highly encourage you to buy it and read it, especially this time of the year as we approach Holy Week. It's applicable. You'll, you'll be blessed by it. But in this book, Cross of Christ, this is what John Stott says. He says, from Jesus' youth, I think we would intuit this, but to hear it and read it, it's just something different. He says, from Jesus' youth, even indeed from his birth, the cross cast its shadow ahead of him. In other words, Jesus was born to die. That was his mission. And that's what Jesus says here. He says, my hour, my purpose has come. Now, just in case the crowds around him 
were unsure of what that purpose was going to be, Jesus tells them plainly in this parable in verse 24. Jesus says, again, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. What does that mean? This is what it means. Truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. All right, so what is Jesus saying? This is what he's saying to this very inquisitive group of Greeks, these people who are desperate to know what kind of Jesus, uh, this king Jesus is, and what he's going to do with his kingship. And through that parable, this is what Jesus says, I'll tell you what kind of king I am. And I'll tell you what I'm going to do with my kingship. I'm going to die. But I'm not just going to die any death. I'm going to die such a death that's going to give people like you life. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm going to be a victorious king. I'm going to be so victorious. I'm even going to achieve victory over death, but this is how I'm going to do it. I'm going to go to my own grave. This is what Jesus is saying to this crowd of what kind of king he is. He is the king, unlike any other king that's come before or has lived since. He's the kind of king that lays down his life for his people, that takes on the punishment his people deserve so that his people could receive the life they did not deserve. And that's what Jesus means by this, this beautiful parable, this simple parable, but profound parable. Like a grain falling into the dirt and producing a great harvest. That's what I'm going to do. Now, shockingly, but not surprisingly, the crowds did not like that, ex, uh, that explanation very much. All right, The, the religious people um, hated it. So did the irreligious people. In fact, the entire world hates the message of the cross. And Paul tells us why in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23. The Jews consider it a stumbling block. <clears throat> and the Greeks, this crowd here pursuing Jesus, consider it foolishness. The whole world hates the idea of the cross. And not much has changed since their day, right? Because the, religious, the Jews are basically the religious people. And religious people typically think they're good enough. They don't need a Savior, or if they do need a Savior, they need him just a little bit, right? That's what religious people typically think. Irreligious people, they are offended by the fact that they should be so bad that a Savior would need to die for them, right? Both of them hate the idea of a dying Savior, hate the idea of a cross. Why? It's simple. They have yet to fully contemplate the severity of their sin. Most people don't like to think about the severity of their sin. They don't want to feel like they need a savior. And unfortunately, there's a whole lot of folks, morally polished folks in the church that feel that same way today, especially down in the Bible Belt. But this is what the Bible says, brothers. You know, and, and I know we know this, but as C.S. Lewis says, oftentimes we don't need to learn something new. We just need to be reminded of what we already know, Okay. The Bible says that we're extremely sinful. Not just a little sinful. We are sin. We are sinful. We're in, we're in a world of hurt. The Bible says just one of our sins, the smallest of our sins, the widest of our sins, was enough to necessitate the cross of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter how good we think we are or how good our mamas said we were growing up. And if she was a good mama, she said you were a good boy. But it doesn't matter what she said. Because all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us are in desperate need for a Savior. And that is why Paul, with such great joy <laughs> and eagerness, says what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3-4. through 4. He says, I delivered to you guys of first importance... And when he says that, he's basically saying, hey, this is the best news you could ever possibly imagine. I'm delivering to you for the very first importance of the first importance that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and raised on the third day. Can you believe it? Was Paul's attitude in 1 Corinthians 15. That news, a dying savior, a savior who dies on a cross, for those who have truly contemplated the severity of their sin, that is the best news that has ever been spoken in the history of the world. For those who have not contemplated the severity of their sin, they will never give Jesus a true time of day because the cross is foolishness to them. 
But this is what Jesus is saying. As king, the cross is central to my life and my purpose as king, and it's central to anyone who wants to be saved. But he says something else too. He says the cross is also central to his disciples. We see that in verses 25 through 26. In 25 and 26, Jesus is, this is Barton's summary, he is basically saying, if, if the cross is central to my life, it is central to anybody who follows me. As Christians, we are people of the cross, is essentially what Jesus is saying. Now, that means two different things. First off, of course the cross is central to us in terms of salvation. We cling to the cross, right? But what Jesus is saying here is that the, the cross is also the model of the disciple's life. A disciple of Jesus Christ is to have a cross-shaped life. It's what theologians call cruciformity. And this is what Paul's point is in Philippians chapter 2, this beautiful passage, one of my favorite passages in Scripture, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. If you flip there, verses 6 through 11, Paul gives this beautiful summary of the entire ministry and arc of Jesus' life from his pre-incarnate self all the way to his ascension. And what you'll note is that there is a paradigm. There is a humiliation to exaltation paradigm. Jesus emptied himself, became nothing, became a servant, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him. Okay? But in verse 5, this is what Paul says before he says that. He goes, Christians, disciples of Jesus Christ, this is the mindset that you are to have. What mindset, Paul? Let me tell you about the pattern of Jesus' life, verses 6 through 11. In other words, what he is saying is not only the cross, the power of our salvation, as we just sang, but it's also the model of humanity, new humanity. Jesus is the perfect human, the, the, the only perfect human being who has ever lived. And he's come to save us, yes, but also to teach us and to show us how to live as renewed humanity. I mean, think about the rest of the world. Think about how you grew up or the people that you, you know, work with or live with or, or just the guys that you went to school with. Everybody that lives now in this world, apart from Christ, is, is completely me-centered. It's a glory now. It's build up my kingdom now. It's to polish up myself now. It's, it's getting my, my accolades now. Right? But that's not how Jesus lived. Jesus laid aside his rights, laid aside his glory, and became nothing. He emptied himself. He humbled himself. He counted others more significant than himself. Jesus was father-focused and other-centered. And right now, he says, that that's the way of the cross, and that, therefore, is the way of my followers. And this is what he clearly says in verse uh, 26, or rather verse 25, when Jesus says, all those who follow me will hate their life. Seems a little drastic, right? If you, if you want to be my follower, you've got to hate your life. What does that mean? Well, Jesus, again, he, he's not telling us to be masochists, okay? He's not saying, hey, avoid any pleasure. In That's not what, we're not supposed to be desert monks. That's not what Jesus is saying. But this is what he is saying. I want you to be consumed with me. I want you to be so fixated on me. I want you to be so in love. I want every fiber of your being, no matter how much you mess up or, or how big your limp is, I want you to follow me. And I want you to do it to where other people think that you actually hate your own life. We're not actually, we're actually loving our lives if we do this, as we'll see in a moment. But you're so consumed with Jesus, you don't give a thought to yourself. Other people say, do you hate your own life? And of course the answer is no, but it's just because we have this new worldview that, that we are not the center of the story, that we're not the central character, that our needs and our wants and our wills and prerogatives are not what's driving the plot. It's all about Jesus. And that's what Jesus says in Matthew and Mark. You know, whoever loves their life is going to lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will have it, and they will have it in abundance. Jesus is saying that the cross is, is central to you for salvation, yes, but it's also going to be your, your pattern of life if you follow me. Now, that's hard 
But notice the blessing, the reward that Jesus attaches to it in verse 26. For those who do this will be honored by my Father. If you go back to Philippians 2, Jesus, or rather Paul, again, is explaining Jesus' earthly ministry. He became nothing. He emptied himself. He became a servant. He died, even died on the cross, but therefore God highly exalted him. He was obedient to the Father's will. He was Father-focused, other-centered. He did what the Father commanded him. Therefore, he was highly exalted. And what Jesus is saying here is, if you follow me, if you take up my cross, don't you know the Father's going to exalt you too? You're not going to be honored by Bob at work. I mean, who cares what Bob thinks at the end of the day? You're going to be honored by the creator of the cosmos. Can you, can you imagine what that will be like? When he sees you and says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Jesus is going to talk more about that in just a moment, but, that, but that's what he's talking about here. So, so here's the application. First off, brothers, as disciples of Jesus, what is it in our life that's preventing us from being sold out to Christ? Right, because that, that's really, that, that's the basic application of this passage. What is, it could be a motivation, it could be a dream, it could be a desire, it could be a possession. What is it that's keeping us from being sold out with Jesus? Whatever that is, Jesus says, just die to it. Who cares what Bob thinks? Die to that. But the other application point is, as disciples, it gives us our marching orders, doesn't it? Because like these Greeks, there are a whole lot of people in our lives and in this world who are desperate to find life and joy, and we know where it's found. It's found by dying to yourself and clinging to the cross of Christ. So the cross is central to the life and mission of Jesus. It's central to anyone who might be saved, and it's central to a disciple of Jesus. It's the very model of our life. Now, secondly, Jesus turns to the glory of the cross, verses 27 through 30. Now, if you happen to think that the cross-shaped life is an easy one, verse 27 sobers you because the actual cross was not easy for Jesus. In verse 27, after contemplating the centrality of the cross, this is what Jesus says. My soul is troubled. Now that word trouble right there, it's the same word for being revulsed and horrified. So contemplating the cross, not even experiencing it, just thinking about it, revulsed him and gave him great horror. Okay. Now a lot of scholars try to skirt around that. They're embarrassed by it for some reason. They, they try to explain in a way this is just a rhetorical device that Jesus uses, you know, because he, he, he prays really. He says, Father, save me from this hour. And they say, this is just a rhetorical device. You know, Jesus is trying to make a point. He's not really praying that. But I love what D.A. Carson says in his commentary. He says, we, we mustn't be quick to explain this away. Because if we explain away this, this prayer that Jesus makes, we minimize the actual horror of what happened that day. Okay? Because the cross is horrible. Y'all know that, but let's just think about it. It goes well beyond the unspeakable pain and shame of being crucified. I can't imagine the pain. I can't imagine the shame. But it goes well beyond that. The greatest horror of the cross is the curse. This is the, this is the first and only time that God the Father and God the Son, who enjoyed perfect, intimate relationship for all of eternity, had that severed. On the cross, the Father put the full weight of his wrath on his beloved Son. In that moment, the Son of God, when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We're to understand that it is the most agonizing protest ever uttered on earth. It is a cry of the damned. And Jesus made it, brothers, so that you and I would never have to make that cry. But we have to understand that horror if we're going to understand the point that John is making here. And here's the point. It's the resolve of Jesus. Jesus understands what he's about to go through. But notice what he says. It's very similar when he says in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but yours. 
He says, my, my, my soul is troubled, but. <laughs> he says, but I have come for this. Why has Jesus come? He has come to save you. He has come to save me. But that's not the ultimate reason Jesus has come, brothers. He has come to glorify his Father. That has been the motivating factor of his entire life and ministry. His central concern was never his will. It was never his comfort. It was never his rights. It was always the glory of his Father. And so right here he says, for this I have come. Now, Father, glorify yourself in me. And note the Father answers that. He says, I have glorified it. And he's undoubtedly talking about the incarnation and the matchless life of Jesus Christ to this point. But notice he also says, and I will glorify it again. Now, some people assume what the Father is talking about there is Jesus' resurrection, as if the cross was just something he had to get through in order to get to glory. The point that Jesus is making here is that it's in the cross, in his cross, that the Father is most glorified. Now you say, how is, that, how is that even possible? It's such a wretched, horrible thing. What happens at the cross? At the cross, the Father's justice and his righteousness and his holiness and his love and his grace and his mercy meet in the willing sacrifice of his beloved son. Brothers, Jesus is the autobiography of the Father. If you want to know what God the Father is like, look to Christ. Better yet, look to the cross of Christ. And when you look to the cross of Christ with eyes of faith, you will know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the Father is worthy of your full loyalty and your deepest devotion. At the cross, the Father is glorified. This, this is high weeds, brothers. Now, how can we apply that? Let's just think about the discipleship aspect first. Are we consumed with the glory of God? One of the aspects of the fall when the fall happened in Genesis 3 is that everybody was after themselves, building their own kingdoms, out for their own glory. Part of new humanity following Jesus is that we are consumed with the glory of God. Brothers, are you consumed with the glory of God? And what would change in your life if you were. Secondly, I think we have this little snippet for our own encouragement. In fact, Jesus tells us as much that, that we hear this voice for our own encouragement. Now, it's kind of weird because the disciples did not quite understand what, what was being said from heaven, right? But Jesus still says, that was uttered for your sakes, not mine. What does he mean? I think this is what he means. Years later, uh, for those men and for us now, and amen, brothers here, in the year 2024, when we study John's gospel and we get to this passage to read what Jesus would later tell John was said in that voice from heaven, you and I would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the horror of the cross and everything that extends from it did not end in defeat, but rather his victory. And therefore, our victory when we cling to it, because it's at the cross that the Son of God died in order to make you in me free. Now that leads to the power of the cross in verses 31 through 33. Quick succession. Jesus notes four things that powerfully happens at the cross. First off, his death passed judgment on this world in verse 31. That the Son of God should become man right, and dwell amongst us in order to love us and to serve us and to save us. That we should have him crucified. That fact alone exposes the sin of the world and the sin of our own hearts, that we would kill God. But here's the great news of the cross. Jesus came as representative of sinful humanity, and he takes that judgment upon himself. So this is what happens at the cross. He exposes the sin of the world, and he saves sinners. Next, verse 31, his death drives out the prince of this world. That is the devil. To the casual onlooker, Calvary might seem like a, you know, a win in, you know, Satan's win column. 
But we know, reading the scriptures, that Calvary meant his utter defeat. It rendered him impotent. Jesus demolished the chains of of guilt and condemnation. He took out the stinger of death. Here's the gospel story starting at Christmas. Christmas is a war story. Jesus invades occupied territory in order to take back what is rightfully his, namely you and me, and he accomplishes this through his life, death, and resurrection. Thirdly, at his death, Jesus is exalted. He fulfills Isaiah, Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 53, where Isaiah says, Behold, my servant shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. But as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. But so shall he sprinkle many nations. So the Greeks were clamoring, what kind of king are you, Jesus? And Jesus says, I'll tell you what kind of king I am. My kingship, you know what my throne is? It's the cross. You know what my coronation is? It's the crucifixion. And you know why, fourthly? So I can draw the whole world to myself. Tim Keller says that that providentially, Jesus' hands were nailed in such a way so that we might have an image in our minds that Jesus truly does embrace and love sinners. His arms are wide open to you. That we might truly know that Jesus means it when he says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. And brothers, the world has gone after Jesus. There's at least 640 million evangelical Christians alone across the corners of this earth. And why is it? It's because there is no king like King Jesus. He saves sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers captives. And he does all of it through his cross. All for the glory of God. Amen? One more thing. Two more things, but more quickly. Secondly, the theology of unbelief. Verses 33 through 43. You know, after hearing Jesus' explanation of the cross, after seeing Jesus do miraculous things, it is kind of surprising that there's still those in the crowd that had not yet believed in Jesus. And that's a little shocking. I mean, can you imagine being there and and hearing Jesus say these things after seeing him do marvelous things like raising Lazarus from the dead, walking on water, do all the things that he's done and hearing him explain who he is and what he's doing. I I just can't imagine not believing in him at this point. And we ask that question a lot, don't we? When we think about friends, what, what is the difference between me and them? I, I believe we have, the, we have the same evidence, and I believe and they don't. It's a great question to ask. First and foremost, it should just simply humble us, the grace of God, because there's no difference between me and someone who doesn't believe. It does remind me of a really amazing story um, between the unlikely friendship of um, Oh, what's his name? He's um, George Whitfield. You know, he was one of the leaders of the Great Awakening. Through his ministry, scores of people came to Christ. Did you know he was like best friends with Benjamin Franklin? Who, you know, was an, you know, he was a deist, basically an atheist. And they were best friends. Um, Benjamin Franklin actually uh, um, uh, wrote down most of his sermons in the Philadelphia Gazette. I mean, he championed George Whitfield. They stayed at each other's houses. George Whitfield witnessed to his good friend, Benjamin Franklin, number of times, yet Ben never came to Christ, and that vexed Whitfield. And it vexes us too. I mean, there's people that we've prayed for and have shared the gospel with countless of times, but there's been no fruit, no evidence of them coming to Christ. And so how do we think about that? This passage you know, is still a mystery, but it does help us think about it. First off, it gives us a definition of unbelief. Sometimes it's easy for us to equate um, indecision and doubt with unbelief. Now, I've been sharing with this guy for a very long time, and he's still waffling. He's still saying he's having a hard time understanding the basics of the gospel. Or maybe uh, they're doubting. They're doubting some of those central truths of the gospel. Maybe we are doubting, and we're kind of freaking ourselves out a little bit. Am I actually a believer? But as we look at this passage, none of those things is what defines unbelief. The unbelief of the crowds. This is what defines the unbelief of the crowds. A conscious rejection of the gospel. 
All right, it had nothing to do with lack of knowledge or struggling with the knowledge that was already given. It was a conscious rejection of the gospel. Notice this conversation that's taking place. The Greeks are, and the Jews too were asking Jesus this question. Jesus, you said the Son of Man must be lifted up, but we heard it, that the Christ will never die. So what kind of Son of Man are you? Notice Jesus does not answer their question. He, he actually starts pleading with them. Guys, listen, I'm not going to be here much longer. You better get on the gravy train. But he never answered their question. Why? Because Jesus has already answered their question in the previous passage. In fact, he's answered their question a whole lot throughout the Gospels. So at this point, what we're to understand is that they were persistent in their unbelief. They were consciously rejecting the gospel. This is just their way of getting out from the, the hot seat. They were rejecting Jesus. Now, why were they doing that? John tells us for two reasons, okay? First off, in uh, verses 42 through 43, one of the reasons was for human responsibility. What John is saying is that the, the root of their failure to confess Christ had, had nothing to do with intellect. It was because they desired the praise of man more than the praise of God. Basically, what it meant was they have twisted little hearts. Ever since the fall, man's heart has had a proclivity of worshiping creatures rather than the creator. So whenever we see unbelief, we shouldn't be surprised. We should be sad. We should pray, but should never be surprised because the heart is deceitful above all else is what John is saying here. There's human responsibility there. But notice too, he also says there's divine sovereignty. He brings up John, or rather Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah is converted, then uh, God commissions him out into gospel ministry. And he goes, yeah, here I am, send me. But before, he goes, okay, before you go out there, let me tell you what your ministry is going to be like. I'm going to use it to judicially harden the hearts of Israel. So basically, you're not going to have any fruit. <laughs> That's so depressing. I mean, if, that, if they were to tell me, Barton, you're, you're never going to have any fruit in your ministry. In fact, God's going to use it to harden people. I mean, that's, but that's what God told Isaiah that day. But this is John's point. John is saying, we can never divorce unbelief from God's sovereignty. God is in control of absolutely everything, including the unbelief of unbelievers. We don't always know why. In this case, we do know why. We do know why he hardened Israel's heart. Paul tells us in Romans 9 and 10 is so that the gospel could go forth to people like me and you. But for the most part, we don't know why we believe and loved ones don't or friends don't. But we do know that God is in control. Ephesians 1, Ephesians 2, even John chapter 6. Still, it's a mystery and it's high weeds. There's this book called Divine Sovereignty and Human Responsibility, a little on the nose, but it's by D.A. Carson and it's very informative. I encourage you. But here's a couple of highlights that help us think about this. Okay, so four things, three things. First off, he says, God's sovereignty and human responsibility are never pitted against one another in the Bible. It's never one or the other. Whenever these type of passages come up, those two things are always held in mystery. And therefore, we have to be okay with mystery. The Bible holds it together in mystery. We hold it together in mystery. Secondly, he said God's hardening of hearts is never presented as a capricious manipulation of an indifferent God, lowercase g, cursing morally neutral people. But rather, it is the holy condemnation of a guilty people who are condemned to do what they themselves have chosen to do. So basically, God and his sovereignty sometimes allows sinful people over to their sinful desires. It might not be forever. It could be for a time. But sometimes he does that. But thirdly, and most hopefully, God's sovereign in these matters is a cause for hope. Because what we see from Scripture is that God's grace is always more persistent than the persistence of unbelief. And a great case study of this is actually Acts chapter 6, verse 7. Through the persistent preaching of the gospel and word ministry, scores of people came to know Christ savingly, including, uh, Luke tells us in that chapter, a great number of the high priests, the bad guys in John's gospel, eventually came to know Jesus in a saving way. Furthermore, there's grace 
If this is all about grace and you are in Jesus Christ, if you didn't earn it, you can't lose it. And that's good news. But in summary, this is what what we can take from this passage. Nobody deserves to be saved, but God still is gracious and is mighty to save. And he's going to save a great number of people that we didn't expect to be saved. And he's going to do it at his own time for his own glory. So how do we think about that as disciples of Jesus Christ? I think this is it. Brothers, we just continue to pray. And we continue to share. This passage is not licensed for us to not do those things. To not do those things is sin. God has chosen his people, me and you, the church, to be the mechanism by which he gathers in his sheep. And he has promised to gather in a whole lot of sheep. And he has given us the dignity of causality to make that happen. And we have no idea who his sheep are. All we're called to do is to be faithful in the kingdom and to trust the results into his sovereign, capable hands, knowing that he loves the lost world far more than we do. Which leads us to the last point. Jesus makes an evangelistic plea. In these last six verses, scholars say that this is really a summary of all the things that Jesus has been teaching in chapters 1 through 12, and it's very much that. But just look on the surface. Jesus knows what's about to lie ahead of him. And he's about to go off with his disciples. He's no longer going to be talking to the crowds. This is his last shot to talk to these people. This is an evangelistic plea for them to believe. And in in his evangelistic plea, we learned a whole lot of things about the pleas we ought to be making. Three quick things, then we'll tie it up. First off, the timing of our plea must be urgent. Verse 44 Notice that Jesus cries out. That word for cry is the same word for shriek, okay? Jesus is shrieking right here. It's the same word that he uses when he calls Lazarus out of the tomb. Otherwise, it's a very rare word. Jesus is shouting at the top of his lungs, so much so it sounds like he's shrieking. You think that's urgent? That the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is shrieking? (laughs) It also ought to make us remember uh, uh, Moses. Remember, John's been painting Jesus as the greater Moses. You remember in Moses' ministry, Deuteronomy 32, at the tail end, he was going to die on this side of the river while the rest of God's people were going to go into the promised land. Before they went into the promised land and before Moses died, he gives his last words on Mount Nebo. And what does he say? He says to all the people of God, pleads with them to know God's word to believe God's word, to teach it to your children and their children. Why? Because in it you will have life. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. This is his plea. He's saying, listen to me. I mean, I'm not going to shriek because I don't want to do that, but he is yelling this. Listen to me. Believe me so that you might have life. So if Jesus is urgent about this, brothers, we have to be urgent. Of course, we trust the results into our Father's hand, but there's an urgency to the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have no idea when the master of the house is going to return. And so repent and believe now should be the tenor of our ministry. Secondly, the subject of our message is, of course, Jesus. Now, I know that sounds like a a no-brainer, but we often make Christianity about other things than Jesus. You know, my wife and I, have y'all ever watched the TV show The Office? Sorry if you haven't. Uh, My wife and I are watching it right now, and uh, Michael Scott, the the goofball uh, boss, he has this salesman tactic that he gives his employees, and it's called, it's an acronym, it's KISS, Keep It Simple Stupid. And uh, there's lots of application for that, even in evangelism. A lot of times we make Christianity about things, you know, What party are you a part of? Who are you voting for? Where are you going to school? What denomination are you a part of? What theology do you ascribe to? Keep it simple. That's what Jesus does here. He doesn't care about any of that stuff. The the only decision, the, the most important decision, is do you believe the gospel? And have you received Jesus as your crucified king? And are you following him? It's not that that other stuff isn't important. It's just that it's not eternal. 
Keep it simple. Keep people fixated on Christ. Then lastly, the consequences. And Jesus says there's two kinds of consequences. First off, there's the already. He says, for all, whoever comes and believes in me, not only will I deliver them from darkness, that is, being blinded to true reality, being doomed to living a vain life, like how much your 401k is like the, the most important thing. Not only will I free you from that nonsense, but I'll bring you into my light. I will unite you to myself. I will introduce you to my Father. And I will fill you with indescribable joy. And I will give you wisdom to know how to live this life in abundance for his glory. It's untold blessing, but that's not even the half of it. He says there's also a not yet. There's the eternal consequences. Jesus is saying, listen, in my first advent, there's amnesty. I've come to preach. I've come to save. But in my second advent, I will come to judge. And the standard of that judgment will be, did you trust me? And so this is what Jesus is saying. He's not telling you to be perfect, because you can't. What he's in love pleading with you is just to trust in him. And for those who do, on that great day to come, we'll hear the Father say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And he will exalt you and honor you just as he has honored his beloved son, the one that you will see and be with forever and ever. Friends, there is no king like King Jesus. Here at Second Pres in our pulpit, we have this little uh, placard. Um, I'm not, some of y'all may have seen it, but as you ascend the pulpit, Every pastor reads John chapter 12, verse 20. Sir, that we might see Jesus. And it's a reminder for our pastors to speak clearly and passionately so that everybody there that morning might catch a glimpse of Christ. And brothers, that is our calling as disciples. That we might live in such a way, speak in such a way, and share in such a way that others might see Jesus. And by God's grace, believe, and by believing, have life in his name. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we love you so much. Uh, we deserve hell. We are more sinful than we ever thought imaginable. But in love, you claimed us. You came after us. You invaded our life to make us your kids to make us princes in your eternal kingdom, forever united to your beloved Son. Father, let that shock us. Let it fill us with joy. And may it compel us to share the great news of the gospel with the Greeks of this world. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.